Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, a movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Again, hello. Uh, so we've got a real real good matchup today, I, I think. Uh, this episode's matchup is based on stylized takes on the Western genre, featuring mysterious deadly men who walk into a town and kind of solve their problems, maybe? Uh, it's a real shootout between Sukiyaki Western Django and The Warrior's Way. Ooh, that's... Oh, ooh. <laughs> uh, I, I, like, I like the dad jokes. The stupid puns gives me life. <laughs> uh, so what was your experience with these movies uh, before watching them for the podcast? So my first exposure to Warrior's Way, and I saw these roughly at the same time, so it obviously been a few years after... Um, Sukiyaki Western Django came out um, but Warrior's Way was the Tobuscus literal video trailer for it hmm. uh, if, you, if you were too young or don't remember what it was Tobuscus was a YouTuber who was fairly big at the time that did these literal trailers where he would sing and narrate what was going on in the trailer the actual actions you, you have to watch them they're, they're pretty humorous and uh, that was my first exposure to Warrior's Way. I thought it was just a really crappy movie because they were doing a, like, it was the time when they put those huge YouTube pushes and like, you know, the cross promotions, which they still do. It's just, I don't give a shit now because I'm mm-hmm. an adult. Um, I'm not in that <laughs> Is sphere. Is it kind of like a, it's kind of like a precursor to Honest Trailers, like in that same vein? It might have been around the time that Honest Trailers was coming out, but yes, uh, okay. it, it was. It's literally he he would take the trailer. He did uh, his biggest ones are like from for Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, for Dead Space Two. So I mean, it's that era. It's right in there gotcha. when all this stuff was big. He still produces stuff, actually. Um, way less views than he used to get. Yeah. Yeah. YouTubing is a rough life. I'm sure podcasting isn't much better. And then Sukiyaki Western Django. How did I figure find out about that? Uh, I think it was Netflix, in all honesty, back when mm. I had first signed up and it was uh, the streaming and DVDs were the same package. Rip yeah. The dream. And, um, <laughs> I mean, still available, a, a, just uh, pro- more Prohibitively expensive, expensive for yeah. thrifty millennials like us. Right. Um all about that second lowest tier of unlimited streaming. Just give me that unlimited streaming. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I think it was suggested to me for some reason or another. Um, I can't exactly recall which it just, it captivated me. And the fact that it was like, you know, Quentin Tarantino and it, it's just, it's a strange ass film. Was uh, your exposure to these films me suggesting them for the podcast? Yes, I had never heard of these films before uh, you brought them up. So this is. Do you wish to forget they ever existed? <laughs> no, I, I actually I liked I liked both of these movies. Um, you know, I liked one more, but we'll get to that. Um, so before we break down the movies, I got two fun facts for you. Uh, fun fact number one in our bacon number connections uh oh i also want to preface this with these are a lot of non-english names we will most likely pronounce them wrong uh rest assured we're trying our best uh so jang dong gun uh yang in the warrior's way and hideaki ito the gunman in sukiyaki western Django, 
are separated by two degrees of bacon. Um, Dong Gun was uh, in 2009 Lost Memories, a South Korean sci-fi action film with Toru Nakamura, who is in Memoirs of a Murder, a 2017 remake of another South Korean film with Hideaki Ito. It gets it gets tangled. That's all I'm saying. There, there is there is actually a weird thing of like remaking like Japanese and Korean films in amongst themselves. Yeah. Um, I know that the first live action initial D, the the drifting anime, mm-hmm. the live action ones are actually Korean films. Huh. And I think they have since made a Japanese one. Okay. So <laughs> there's some, there's some cross pollination, which goes back into the history of Japan and Korea. Uh, it's not pleasant, that history, but we don't want to get into that here. <laughs> uh, but fun fact number two about these two movies, uh, neither of them made money, made their budget back at the box office, even domestically and worldwide combined. Uh, Sukiyaki Western Django only made 50 grand here in the U.S. Now, and, are you uh, sure that domestic is not Japanese domestic? I'm not sure, actually. Forgive my American centrist views. But I, IMDb's uh, a Western website, so I figured they were talking about America. Fair enough. I mean, that would make sense as well because it didn't get a, a wide theatrical lease. It was probably only in some art house and maybe some film uh, circuit scenes. Yeah, I, so. I do know that they f- uh, sh- showed it in festivals. Yeah, um, and they had a a different cut of the film that they. They shortened. They shortened by about twenty eight minutes for. So we watched the international cut, then, correct? No, we didn't actually, uh, because the international cut features a scene where after one of the guys gets his balls shot off, he develops a uh, like That's right. loving I relationship with that. the boss, which is just like, you know, it's strange but i think uh, we would remember that i'm sure if it happened in this movie uh that that did not crop up in the version we watched there's probably a reason a good 20 minutes was cut then because that seems like it adds nothing to the story yeah it was cut uh, the they said that the footage was cut for pacing basically yeah so this (laughs) may be the better cut um so Tsukiyaki Western Django made about 2.6 million total, 50 grand coming from probably the US on a budget of 3.8. Warrior's Way made about 16.5 million worldwide on an estimated budget of 45 million. I mean, you can actually see that that money was going places. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, the. The fact that Warrior's Way budget was 15 times larger does show through. Um, but then I again, that, the, to, the, to the credit of Tsukiyaki Western, like it doesn't feel like a cheap film. I'm actually kind of shocked the budget mm-hmm. was under $4 million. Now, there, there are reasons it might actually be bigger, but the you know, just ask uh, George Miller how big his budget is and how big Warner Brothers says his budget <laughs> is. and Why we're never right. going to get another Mad Max or that Furiosa spinoff we were supposed to get. Right. What was the movie that ended up being like a huge uh, money laundering scheme? Most of them. Almost every single one of the top grossing films of all time. Uh, the biggest story that I that comes to mind is um, Forrest Gump had a big thing mm. where the writer had has another script and they they finally worked it out where they're gonna they're gonna make it. Um, 
but he was get, supposed to get a percentage of the net. And mm-hmm. let's the net does not exist in Hollywood accounting. All movies lose money regardless. <laughs> right. Movie budgets are a strange, strange black hole that money falls into and never comes out of. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, a lot of those mid-range films that are, like, gone or, like, those direct-to-DVD things from, like, Eastern Europe that inexplicably feature A-list actors, those are probably money-laundering schemes. Um, Mm. uh, People have accused Uwe Boll multiple times of using uh, his position to money-launder using tax credits from German film, uh, from the German government. Um, Mm -hmm. That's... That's... A narrative I've heard. I don't know if it bears fruit, but judging by how shitty his films are, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, some shady Eastern European mobsters were laundering money through it to lose money. Yeah, and even like intentionally being bad or offensive to like sink that ship. I don't know if you've seen his movie Postal, but I have not. It's got a hell of an opening. I'll just say that. I, I have no interest in seeing it. I. <laughs> tried watching house of the dead and mm-hmm. i barely remember it and in uh, as you know me i remember just about everything <laughs> yeah especially especially in movies I, I think you got a real head for it yes <laughs> and if i can't remember i i remember shots and i remember that's about it so enough about yeah. movie bowl um interesting to know that neither of these films made money didn't make money kind of not surprised because of how niche these genres are we're talking westerns with crossovers Mm -hmm. Um, so they both scored a 6.3 on imdb at one time or another and uh (laughs) small programming note uh when we've initially did research and we're putting together a list of movies these were rated the same it's since fallen off but rest assured at one time the internet thought these were equivalent movies (laughs) <laughs> uh, we'll start with the film that was released first, which is Sukiyaki Western Django. Sukiyaki Western Django is a 2007 film uh, written by Masa Nakamura and directed by Takahashi Mike, who also has, shares a writing credit. Uh, Nakamura is known for his film writing on films Dragonhead and The Bird People of China. Sound really interesting. And Mike is known for being really weird. Uh, Ichi the Killer is, uh, it's a film, and (laughs) 13 Assassins is a great film, actually. Uh, Apparently, he's also directed the live-action JoJo's Bizarre Adventure movie, which is right in his wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, The general gist of the story for Tsukiyaki Western Django is two ancient clans, the Genjis and the Heikes, which, side note, are some of the two of the oldest clans uh, in Japan. with the corresponding colors of white and red, uh, find a uh, a town with a legend of a hidden treasure and begin killing each other over it, basically trying to find the, the root of all the treasure. And one day, a lone gunman uh, rides into town to break the deadlock. Yep. It's, a very, it's a very Western story. I mean, obviously based... This is not the first time the story's been told. Um, it's about the fifth time the story's been told <laughs> yeah in film alone um so it's this something film... you instantly recognize as a, as a western storyline even if it wasn't presented in that way 
It's a Western storyline presented via the lens of a Japanese story set in Japan in the Japanese town of Nevada. <laughs> um, yeah. So what did you think of the film? I mean, I, I enjoyed it a lot. For me, it took the second time watching it to like really get the story down. Um, part of that is the fact that the movie is all in English, but few of the people in the movie are native English speakers. So it is a little hard to understand for me. Even I, I consider myself pretty good with understanding accents, but I even struggled in this movie. Some of it just gets a little lost. So subtitles are recommended. I mean, it's not necessary if you're devoting all your attention to it. Like when I first watched it, I honestly didn't have trouble understanding it, but I'm not going to like hate on anyone. It does make it easier, especially for some actors that English is very, not very much not their first language. Uh, yeah. Note does go out to the leader of the, uh, the, the Genjis, he speaks really good English. Um, yeah. Yoshitsune, um, Minamoto mm -hmm. Yoshitsune speaks very near fluent English or, or at least with just the mildest of accent. Um, he's also the biggest star in this film, if I uh, don't miss my guess, other than surprise guest appearance by Quentin Tarantino, who's bestest buds with Takahashi Miike. Yeah, he, I was watching this intro there's one face that quentin tarantino makes right in the intro as he's like cutting the egg out of the snake yeah. where tarantino has a very prominent chin and he like also purses both of his lips and like the profile of that face really just struck me for some reason uh, I mean, this film is uh, very visually minded. I think, um, you know, one of the criticisms leveled against it that I've read is, you know, style over substance. And I'm not going to say that's not, um, I, I disagree with that because I think there is substance there and that this is, there's, there's a lot of layers of meta going on with this because this is very clearly an homage to um, Fistful of Dollars, the Sergio Leone, uh, Clint Eastwood film. However, A Fistful of Dollars is a direct copy, uh, in fact, an illegal copy of the Japanese film Yojimbo, directed by Akira Kurosawa, starring Toshihiro Mifune. Yeah, which is also directly named in this, in this film as well. Yeah, and when uh, the, the gunman, who is known as the gunman, played by Hideaki Ito, rides into town, um, both sides come out to try to court him to say, you know, join our side or that side. Uh, the Genjis, uh, sorry, am I right? Is it the Genjis? I, I, yes, the Genjis in white. The Genjis offer him a lifetime contract uh, that's a one-time offer, so but he can't change sides so that he can't play Yojimbo. Because in the <laughs> yeah. story Yojimbo, Sanjiro, the tutelar, um, the tutelar Yojimbo, which is Wandering Samurai, uh, also, there's a sequel called Yojimbo, which is more comedy, actually. Mm. Uh, constantly is playing both sides against each other to get an outcome. You don't necessarily know, and he, uh, throughout the film, doesn't necessarily know exactly what that outcome is until about the, the halfway through the second act. Um, this has very similar things that, like, you don't know what his motives are. They seem a little more concrete than, say, Yojimbo, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Yojimbo, or um, Fistful of Dollars. But I think that's more owing to the trappings of the genre that, like, 
by now you expect that to happen because it has happened. Um, funny enough, both Fistful of Dollars, Yojimbo, Sukiyaki Western Django, uh, Last Man Standing, and I think there's like I think a few TV shows have honestly also done this plot. Is yeah. all a reference? I, I believe the Ur, um, uh, the originator of this idea of the story, is uh, a Philip Marlowe story written by is Philip Marlowe Dashiell Hammett, or is that um, the other guy? Uh, you got me there. <laughs> Philip Marlowe, uh, Raymond Chandler, Raymond Chandler story. Uh, if you Google Philip Marlowe, the picture attached to it is a picture of Liam Neeson. That's really weird. Because <laughs> famously, Philip Marlowe was portrayed by Humphrey Bogart. Um, I also oh. might be wrong. It might not be a Philip Marlowe story. It might be uh, Raymond Chandler's detective. Uh, or excuse me, um, Dashiell Hammett's detective, which uh, is the Maltese Falcon, also played by Humphrey Bogart. Uh, so, uh, you know, get fucked my memory about which private detective is which when the two most famous ones are both played by the same goddamn guy. <laughs> Apparently Liam Neeson was supposed to play Philip Marlowe in something that may not have happened yet. But that's, that's where the picture comes from, at least. I, I figured it was that as like, man, someone just really wants Liam Neeson to be Philip Marlowe. <laughs> um, anyway, digressing too much. So... This story has been told time and time again. Uh, there, there is, you know, it's a timeless story of the the lone individual. Like, uh, you could set this in so many different like uh, genres and get the same result, and the same themes would hold true. I mean, mm -hmm. for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking that there is there's a sci-fi that's had this story. I wouldn't be surprised. And um, yeah. there's also been like an apocalyptic movie that had this story. It's definitely, it's, it's a very like versatile template. I yeah. think yeah. All, all you need is two opposing sides and one, the main character in the middle reacting and acting. I mean, that's it. And you get this, <laughs> this base story if you want to boil it down to it. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of mystique to like the, you know, the mysterious warrior you know, as we see a little bit in like Warrior's Way, you know, there's there's definitely like an an appeal and, and it it like it's instantly interesting to have this this person wander into a town. I think. Yeah, and you know, uh, different films handle it differently. Obviously, like um, uh, Fistful Adult, like all all the the first ones that you know spawn these uh, story the sequels and all that they don't really dwell on who this character is where they got their skills how you know what is their true motivation really they're they're not an audience surrogate because they have agency that the audience isn't aware of mm -hmm. but like but they they do provide that foil for like explanation or or you know exposition because I mean, honestly, like if you were to make this today, it would just be a vanity project for the lead actor to look like a badass. <laughs> who who would uh who would be a good person for that? Well, it depends. Uh, so, like, uh, you know, Fistful of Dollars famously launched Clint, Clint Eastwood's film career and his entire career. Uh, but before that, he was on the Connie Show as um, 
rawhide as rowdy yates mm. and um was kind of a more comedic and a secondary character this is where he did serious work and you know became uh you know a titan of hollywood for many years until he decided to talk in an empty chair <laughs> Yeah, I did watch. Uh, I watched about the first 45 minutes of Fistful of Dollars. I put it on at the wrong time. I was starting to get tired, but I I can see, you know, I did get a good taste of how similar the, those movies are. I mean, and it's it's real strange to see a young Clint Eastwood just because I haven't watched any of his any of his well, early movies. Well, you know what? If you want to be really strange seeing a young Clint Eastwood, watch any film with Scott Eastwood in it. Oh, yeah, that's true. He's definitely his father's son. <laughs> mm -hmm. St strong genes on that, man. Yeah. So. Um, but the, the template of, of Sukiyaki Western Django or, or the Yojimbo story uh, kind of gets... Or the Red Hook like... story <laughs> or Red Cliff, whatever it is. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, it kind of gets like a... It's like an anime style treatment. I don't know if like if that that's style originated in anime or if it's something that's existed in Japanese cinema before that but the touchstone for me is definitely anime and you see it in like the opening with Tarantino where you know he flings the egg up in the air you know shoots everyone catches it again that yeah, kind of I mean style that to me feels like Mike is actually making a reference to Japanese theater the no theater, the Kabuki theater, where it's very exaggerated, mm -hmm. overly so on purpose. I mean, he's literally delivering a haiku. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's that's something that I think anime does a lot of is those big exaggerated like there's a there's a camera shot when Quentin Tarantino's character uh, Peringo draws the knife that just like zooms in on the knife. It's definitely, you know evokes that that style for me also there's a couple like you know whooshing sound effects when like people are making fast movements there's like a you know the blinking sound effect the sheriff does there's yeah like and then comedy well, then sprawling when uh when um yoshitsune reveals all of his guns on the saddle yeah it took me out of the movie a couple times i was just like oh okay i guess we're doing that yeah um Again, a, a very stylized film. I, uh, mm -hmm. I definitely, I definitely understand the criticism of style before uh, story or plot or anything like that. But again, this is an homage to an homage to an homage to an ad adaptation, basically. Yeah. I mean, uh, and there's homages to other things within this uh, movie. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's character returns at one point and directly references that his kid's name was Akira because mm -hmm. he's an otaku. <laughs> he mm -hmm. uses the line otaku. Yeah, he calls himself an anime otaku, I, I believe. Yeah. You know, obviously pointing to the, the anime film of the, of the same name. Which is uh, a flat, uh, which the guy he says that to delivers a flat what? Because <laughs> this is set in the time of 1890. Right. <laughs> uh. I think Quentin Tarantino works really well in this film. Um, one of the one of the things I heard in uh, or heard about Quentin Tarantino's work is that he kind of, you know, parodies movies in a way that 
Well, it's not parody because parody implies Sorry. making fun of. Yeah, pays pays tribute to movies in ways where if like you know the reference material, it like pays off in a big way for you. But if you don't, it's also f- good to watch or fun to watch. And I think in this movie, like not knowing the reference material kind of detracts from the movie a little bit. Having not seen Fistful of Dollars like before this movie, mm-hmm. I think some of the stuff was lost on me to the film's detriment. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to, to to see that because when I saw this film, I had already seen A Fistful of Dollars. I'd already seen Yojimbo. I believe yeah. I had seen uh, the original Django. And so coming into this film, and having all the things that occur into it lead up to a end credits gag where the original Django theme song is <laughs> adapted into Japanese, it yeah. all just makes sense in my head. Because again, what you're saying, you've I've seen all the references. I can't honestly right. ha- like view this outside of that because those those visual references, the story references are already there. Mm-hmm. And definitely for me watching it a second time, like the movie got better for me because I, I at least I didn't, you know, my 45 minutes of a fistful of dollars didn't add that. I think it was like knowing the story of the movie, like helped the movie itself. So I think even having that reference material would help even more. Now, did you, you had subtitles on both times, I assume? Yes. Yeah, I did. Do you think that it helped because you weren't having to read the subtitles as much the second time? Um, I would say I'm pretty comfortable reading subtitles and watching a movie. Um, I, so I don't, I don't think that like having the subtitle doesn't detract for me. Um, because some as, uh, a lot of times, like in video games and whatnot, when I'm playing it and the subtitles there, I'm like reading it over and over again while the character is reading their line. Because right. it's not you know closed captioning style where it's coming out as they're saying it. It's here's the entire line of this line read. <laughs> right. Get too too much subtitle. Also, um, side note on subtitles, they need to be fucking yellow. Please, yellow subtitles as standard. White subtitles, so many times I cannot see them because the background is also light colored with a little bit of black. Right. Speaking of speaking of white, though, um, one of the color theming. Yeah, one of the really cool shots that I I liked in this movie is like our first look inside the Genji hideout. Uh, Yeah, with a giant uh, crane. Yeah, some bird on a a tree, um, but seeing that like white interior coming from like seeing after after the intro, it's all kind of dark and brown, and then you get transported into this like white inside. And I think like one of the things that really stood out for me was they have white pillars in that room, like they're wood painted white. They're not like marble or anything, mm-hmm. but having those white pillars like kind of break break up the background a bit i thought i thought was really cool and i liked uh that look inside that hideout yeah i mean um color obviously is very important to this film it actually is a bit of a theme in this film where <laughs> um who is the little what is the little boy's name uh hey hachi hey hachi um who is the son of akira mm-hmm. uh so quentin tarantino's character is 
grandson, keep up, um, <laughs> is uh, his parents were crossbreeding flowers, white uh, lilies and red lilies, because um, Akira comes from the Heikes and she was Genji mm-hmm. and That's they right. married. Yeah. And it's a bit of a theme that when the, you know, First, the there was you know gold fever, and then um, the the Heikes come, and the the town was happy because they were mostly Heike, but then the Heikes were just as bad as the prospectors, if not worse. They, you see how bad uh, the the Heikes are when yeah. uh, Boss Kinomori uh, kills Akira. Sorry, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, like coming into this podcast, should maybe should maybe do that. Um, Boss Kinomori is kind of uh, he he's an idiot. He's played as like cruel and unintelligent and mean spirited. Uh, he's yeah. also a coward inherently. Also, but uh, like with pretenses of intelligence, because he like you know. Tries oh, to yeah. read he, from he, Henry he, the Sixth, and he reads from the War of the Roses, uh, mm-hmm. and so he then after that insists on him calling himself Henry because in that the Red Roses won, which I don't know if the history is correct on that, uh, but then again I'm not an, by any means an expert on the War of the Roses. Same. <laughs> so you know, Boss uh, Hinamori. Um, it's really hard for me to hate the Genjis as much as I do not like the Heikes. Like mm-hmm. the Genjis come off as, you know, opportunistic and bad, but they don't come off as like cruel and petty and like mean spirited. Like they have an identity outside of we need money because the money will get us back to greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Yoshitsune really is like embodies the idea of like warrior spirit. And he specifically calls it something where he does a barehanded blade block, which is yeah actually impossible. There's <laughs> a really weird, like opening scene um, because like it's your first look into the Genji, like side of the world, basically. And you're inside their thing, and he basically walks up to a table where two dudes are just sitting, hands him his sword, and is like, "Well, yeah, go at it." And then <laughs> it's kind of like, "Have you talked about this before? Like, was there a set arrangement? Like, everyone's here because you're gonna do this sword catching thing?" Or I kind of got the feeling like this isn't the first time Yoshitsune has done this, and like he always does this as kind of like his morale thing. Mm-hmm. And like that, most of the Genjis are there because it's the 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 stronger gang, yeah. because they are referred to like as gangs, even though they are clans. <laughs> yeah, the Genji are pretty much just waiting for the Heike to find the treasure, and then they're going to take it from them. Well, they is, explicitly is the say that that's yeah. what they do. Bloody, be- uh, excuse me, um, uh, Rukio uh, explicitly says that's what happens. Yeah, and Rukio has her own secrets. <laughs> Spoiler, uh, she's a badass. <laughs> she she fights with eight arms. Yes, she does. Also, uh BB reference to Kill Bill in that. Mm-hmm. Bride of or the bride character. Yeah. Well, BB um, was her daughter. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
But I think I think it's a minor naming nomenclature reference to it. Again, this film is full of them. Uh, there is at one point a coffin being dragged through the mud <laughs> that has a machine gun in it, which is a reference to Django, this mm-hmm. movie's namesake. Um, <laughs> other references to Django in that um, Heihachi uh, goes to Italy and actually becomes Django. <laughs> yeah, this uh. This movie does not have a lot of subtlety, <laughs> um, especially in its symbolism, like with the white and red uh, flowers, like Heihachi is literally shown like in birthing fluid in the middle of that flower. Yeah. This movie has all the subtlety of a hammer. <laughs> subtlety of a gunshot, maybe, because that's mm-hmm. kind of what this is. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the interesting, uh, there is a cinematography thing that they do. Whenever there's a flashback, they're like overexposed. Yeah. And, and like, but like desaturate or like, uh, get, like color corrected to be like really bright with the green and the red and all that, but like desaturated otherwise. Whereas the, you know, the, the current time is pretty normally shot. Uh, mm-hmm. And then... Um, yeah, so again, there's a lot of style going on. So again, the, the criticism of style over substance is is noteworthy because of how much style this film has. Uh, there's also that shot um, when uh, the gunman is jumping out of the window onto his horse. <laughs> and the horse is nowhere near him. Yeah, and it kind of like does this multi-shot, like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It does like it's, this multi shot like like frame by frame and zoom. Yeah. It's real strange uh, to see in this movie. But then when he, his horse is nowhere near him, but when he lands, he lands on his horse, which is under the awning that he jumped out of. And I think the people that are chasing him, like, look at that and, like, are really confused by it. Yeah. So this movie isn't the most serious at all. I mean, it has some serious themes going on. And, you know, when actual drama and you know terrible things happen it treats them with a, a modicum of respect yeah it uh, gives the, gives I, that I, stuff a little space to breathe you know i think it honestly is character dependent if, if you kind of like uh, remember back in the film like because henry is almost always play or you know hinomori is uh all, always almost played for laughs and like nothing he does is serious um, the most outright comedic character is the sheriff <laughs> who is doing a very interesting Gollum impression, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it just kind of like the way they spring that on you, like he's played very straight up until basically uh, Shizuka um, hands him the note, like saying, hey, they're going to get this weapon, this Gatling gun uh, in a coffin. And then you kind of see him outside and he just starts like talking to himself and like pulling himself in different directions. He like grabs himself and pushes him up against a pole. Like it's very, I mean, it's really good physical acting actually mm-hmm. like props to, to the actor there, which is um, who is that Koichi Saito? Oh, here we go. Uh, Teruyuki Kagawa. Is the uh, that, is the sheriff? That sounds cool. Okay, he did a, a really a really good job. Um, something I'm curious to know, and I never uh, researched because I'm lazy, um, is 
was there any lip syncing going on or were they actually all speaking English? Um, I know that there was one scene where uh, the gunman talks, uh, but like in the movie is putting a cigarette up to his mouth and it, but it's right before a flashback. So I don't know if it was like a narration that starts the flashback or something. Or like but, an ADR thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it was definitely like the same voice uh, just didn't match up to the character. So they may have ADR some things, but I didn't, I didn't catch anything where it was like very obvious uh, like dubbing. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, would you recommend people watch this film? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, my recommendation would be for subtitles to help follow the film, but I think like the, the story is very good. I think it's well paced. I think especially with maybe 28 minutes cut out of the film. Um, yeah. You know, that was speaking of pacing, sorry to interrupt your, your point no here, but, uh, you know, a thing that is almost common in almost all spaghetti westerns and a lot of westerns is that the middle part of the film will drag on because, like, they they get action and style and and you know setup out of the way really quickly, but then they have to backload it all in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so this film doesn't have that, but you know, some people will disagree that the way they do it via flashbacks that might be pace breaking for them or immersion breaking or you know, X, Y, or Z. Um, I don't think it hurts it too much. The flashbacks are usually enough. Now, what could hurt it is that the flashbacks are retreading over the same things multiple times. You're just getting different angles or more information. Yeah. Which is, it feels like that's a very Japanese way of telling stories. Could be, yeah. I'm I'm not familiar enough to with Japanese cinema to really tell you one way or the other. Um, uh, so I'll rephrase that. Uh, that feels like a very modern Japanese way of telling okay. and filling in information is, yeah. oh, here's a flashback. Uh, you know, I'm thinking more of in that, uh, again, the reference to anime comes up. Uh-huh. Uh, not that anyone cares, but in Sword Art Online uh, 2, it starts with, you know, the, what it starts with. But at a certain point, they go over events that like never occurred in the original story or original light novel or anything like that, that it, like should seriously impact the, the main character, um, mm-hmm. which is overall a problem uh, entirely separate and a hundred percent sword arts own doing, but like they want to add extra drama and extra backstory that they didn't necessarily think of beforehand. I feel in a lot of like animes. So that's yeah. just my two cents on that. Why it's used a lot and why I notice a lot in, um, Japanese media basically maybe right. not necessarily a Japanese film thing so yeah but I mean as far as the pacing of this movie goes I never felt like I never was like okay yeah, yeah get on with it um and I think I think the final battle is a lot of fun the you know showdown in the town with uh uh Ruriko revealing that she's the bloody Benton yeah, and it just it just it just breaks off, and there's explosions and and gunfire and uh, the Gatling gun. And... Yeah, even even the final showdown between Yoshitsune and the gunman is like is quick. You yeah, know? and I I think even that works really well because I don't need like another drawn out battle after we just sat through one. So kind well, of the. That... 
that that showdown is is straight out of samurai films you know uh, there's probably multiple samurai films that he's referencing explicitly with the the theming and the staging and the fact that it's in snow that mm-hmm. comes out of nowhere and drops like <laughs> three feet in the span of a, a stare down yeah but like yoshitsune says it is class <laughs> One thing the snow really does that I really like is you get a, that final shot of the gunman riding out of town, leaving that like single set of horse footprints in the snow. Yeah. And that must have been a pain in the ass to like reshoot. <laughs> like, I mean, all right, I'm going to put the snow was, back down. Maybe get it was back one and here. done. Maybe. It's, maybe it's not that uh, Stanley Kubrick, you know, let's get a couple more just for security. <laughs> <laughs> Coverage. Yeah, and then it, it closes with the revelation that Heihachi becomes Django. <laughs> Somehow Heihachi goes from being a small Japanese boy to Franco Nero, an Italian man. You know, it works as long as you don't think too hard about it, or at all about it. <laughs> Just don't don't think about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, here Here's the Django theme in Japanese. Go. <laughs> Django! <laughs> but yeah, a good movie. I really enjoyed um so shall we take a quick break and then we'll come back with uh, the warrior's way the warrior's way <laughs> all right welcome back uh our next movie on in the matchup is the warrior's way a 2010 film written and directed by sung Mu lee who has only really done this movie, uh, we think. There's another <laughs> Sung Mu Lee, possibly, who did another like VR short. We're almost positive it's different people. But not 100% positive. Yeah, not We're enough. Like 80%? Like, if we were a casino game, you, you, could, you could bet money on us, and we'd probably get you your money back. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good bet, not, but not sure enough that I don't want to at least mention it, just in case we're wrong. Um, but the warrior's way follows Yang, the world's finest swordsman, swordsman who packs it in and leaves Japan to find an old friend in the Wild West rather than kill the infant queen of a rival clan. He carries the baby to his friend's desolate, broken down town, finds out his friend, his friend has died. So he takes over his laundry uh, service and settles down, um, living a very quiet life. Uh, there he meets Lin, a redheaded woman with a tragic backstory who knew his old friend as long as Yang keeps his sword sheathed uh, as to not reveal the whales of the souls he kills, killed, his rivals won't find him. But uh, that does not remain possible forever as he unsheaths it to help Lin and attracts the ire of the assassins after him. The sad flutes. The sad flutes. The sound that the throat makes when you cut it. Mm-hmm. Starting from the beginning... This uh, this film I felt had a much stronger anime opening than uh, Sukiyaki Western Django. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's really anime when the first fight that happens like features the same trappings again of like a samurai film, but turned up to eleven. You know, there's mm-hmm. cutting through water, slow motion kind of thing going on, and yeah, uh, the whole like swordsman runs through, sheathes his sword, everyone behind him explodes in fountains of blood. Oh, then then there's the uh, the 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 text on screen of the the greatest swordsman that has ever lived. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And it disappears when Yang kills him. And then reappears on Yang. Also, that text. I mean, the CGI in this movie is like, okay. But that text looks like the text I used to make like back in like Photoshop Elements 1.0 in middle school when everything had to be like bubble glass style. It reminds me of some very early internet stuff. Yeah, it it, it was going for a style, and I don't know if that was original or if they ran out of budget, which, who knows, but I I don't think Jeffrey Rush and uh, a Korean superstar at the time were very cheap, nor was Danny Houston probably cheap. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh I like a lot of the CGI just that that text in particular stood out to me as just like uh... well no, the 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 CGI that was used in this film was used creatively as in it was very obviously CGI but it was stylized to look like, you know, a style. It was to have a presence and when it's CGI it's CGI. Yeah. But I, I think I think it mixes well with what I assume are some practical effects, some wire fighting and and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, th- there's there's some really good fight scenes in this movie, as well as the, the previous one we talked about. We just didn't, you know, talk about that. We talked more about the way it looked. Mm-hmm. Um, this film actually lets the characters breathe a lot more than uh, many other films in this like genre mashup thing going on. Like, there's extended periods of uh, the of the between the the first and the second act where there's hints of action and there's some action, but there's a lot of character development going on, actually. Yeah. Uh, Yang, you know, takes over the the, the Chinese laundry uh, in this, the, the town of, uh, what's the name of the town? Uh, I believe it's Paris. It's like... Yeah. Mm, no, the, the Paris of the West. Load. Okay. Uh, obviously, uh, Load is uh, a boom and bust town. Uh, taken up to 11 stylistically with there being sand everywhere and all the buildings are broken and mm-hmm. destitute. Uh, it, it looks like a place that you would see as a studio backlot. Yeah. But like people apparently live here and it's got a giant <laughs> Ferris wheel as well. Right. I, I really liked the uh, the like circus setting of this town. I, I thought that that was, was pretty interesting. Oh, it was like, yeah, the, the, the this traveling circus was going to settle down here and become a you know stable circus. And the town was very prosperous, as we see in flashbacks later in the film. Um, but bad things happened. Right. Yeah, it's a town that has lost a tenth of its population, as you see on the, the sign as they uh, pan over it. There's There's a ton of backstory in like the first 30 minutes of this film. Like watching is it's kind of like montage after montage after montage, like in some are some are flashbacks, some are happening in the present, but this thing moves very quickly. Yeah, uh, you know, some some might say that certain things like that might be better left, you know, either thinking about like, you know, films back in the day, they didn't need to explicitly tell you this stuff if they if they wanted to show you. Uh, how depraved someone was, they would just do it. And so I think that's a criticism you can levy at either of these films is that using backstories to establish how terrible a person is, is Mm. maybe you're still showing it, but you're having characters tell you about it first as well. Like it's a visual medium. Just show them being depraved and evil. Yeah. 
I think th- um, I, there may be like a couple things like Lynn's, you know, first interaction with uh, the Colonel uh, Danny Houston's character. Yeah, th- yeah, that would be weird to to throw in. Like that that backstory is fine, and it obviously shows you what happened to the town and what happened to her family that she doesn't talk about explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, most of the the re- like the the relationship that forms between Yang and Lynn. I actually really enjoyed it because it was like, it felt naturalistic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not like the fact that time has passed or that they show time passing with, with all these montages keeps it away from that. Like, you know, Oh, they've developed a loving relationship overnight. Or you, we, yeah. You, you, they, they keep going back to this flower garden. That was nothing when they first came in. Mm-hmm. And now it's this beautiful bloomed flower garden. So very clearly months at least have passed with uh, Yang in town, helping the town, you know, get back together and doing the laundry. Right. Right. I think it handles that very well. And, you know, it, it has more of that that symbolism that maybe Western Django kind of faltered a little bit with. And it, it's more like, OK, you don't have to, like, say that this flower garden or, you know, like have a specific flower that Lynn's family used to grow and he's repairing it. It's like just have a flower garden like we'll pick up the rest. Yeah, uh, obviously, that's, you know, him understanding the play and but then there's things where the narrator a narrator by jeffrey rush who also plays in the film comes in and um kind of explicitly says stuff to you oh yeah so it's so it's a little insulting to the intelligence of the audience that like the what there's a scene where it's like uh it's kind of like a little a little uh, the the beginning of their relationship is happening and after like oh you get this and then all of a sudden uh, Jeffrey Rush goes in and he's talking like this and he says <laughs> that he was feeling the the first feelings of love basically is what he says yeah. or uh, one of the lines I remember is uh, you know and the warrior learned that it was sometimes better to grow things up than to cut them down talking about the flower garden yeah it's like we we could see that he was enjoying gardening. You didn't have to tell us he was enjoying gardening as <laughs> well. well. Maybe that undercuts my point a little bit about the symbolism, but I didn't. Well, no, I think the symbolism is there, but like, I don't necessarily, something like that almost speaks of like executive meddling or like something like that, mm-hmm. where like they came in and said like, no, people aren't going to get it. You know, you pay Jeffrey Rush all this money. You got to have him narrate. <laughs> Yeah. Also, when obviously the colonel's men ride into town, they run right over that that flower garden. And at least there isn't a voice over that time. It was as if those colonel's men brought the violence and cut down the flowers that meant that Yang was growing and loving things and such and so forth. (laughs) Jeffrey Rush, of course, plays the town drunk with uh, an even darker past than the 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 mysterious man who comes into town that doesn't have a name that everyone calls skinny. Yeah. Skinny. They call him Sandman at the end, which was kind of like a weird thing when he's literally at the end, when he's walking into the sunset. I I don't remember that. So yeah, they call him skinny. Lynn calls him skinny, call him laundry boy. Most of the time or laundry guy. Yeah. He He never offers up a name, right? Like, all right, we'll just make one up for you. Then. 
Uh, one of my favorite little scenes in this film is Kate Bosworth, intro uh, Lynn introducing herself to Yang by like seeing if he's an assassin, just like Smiley was uh -huh. by like terribly sneaking up on him. And it's demonstrated that he knows she's there and he just full on face tanks, <laughs> a, like a, a, a wooden sword. Yeah. To the shoulders, just breaks it over him. And uh, she can't really draw a reaction out of him until she aims a rock at the baby, which you got to have some real confidence that this is going to work if you're hucking rocks at a kid. So, you know, speaking of like um, what, we, what we were talking about previously that, you know, they're making references, the, the, the assassin that couldn't kill the child is an, an explicit reference, at least in my mind, to the Shogun assassin uh, movie and the Lone Wolf and Cub stories. Mm. which is, again, Japanese cinema, samurai cinema. Um, Shogun Assassin is also the movie that uh, BB and uh, the Bride watch in um, Kill Bill Part 2, or Volume 2, excuse me. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, it's apparently BB's favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> I forget a lot about that. Yeah, the Volume 2. I've, I've seen Volume 1 several times, but Volume 2 I think I've seen once. Yeah, volume two. Uh, people don't uh, watch it as much, but it's a. It is. It was Quentin Tarantino's first attempt at doing a western, uh, while he was also simultaneously making a samurai revenge story. <laughs> Funny that. Yeah, it's it's a real. I don't want to call it chocolate and peanut butter, but it's like. Hmm. Well, they they have you know similar ideas and whatnot. You know where they come from are they come from times of lawlessness or you know expansionary periods in both the uh, both america and uh japan's history where there were lone wandering individuals that you know changed the status quo in areas or at the very least you know uh were something to talk about and it's easy for a writer to ascribe what they want to talk about to this archetype. I mean, this archetype of the lone individual standing up against many forces exists in almost every culture. Yeah. And if it doesn't exist in the culture, there are examples within the culture. Um, when, uh, the, fir the first thing was um, entertainment or, you know, folklore. The second is actual events. Yeah. And I think, I think especially like, in American Westerns or like, you know, in American culture, there's a big thing of like, you know, one man can make a difference or, you know, one person, you can be anything you want to like, you just got to believe it's a lot about the power of the individual. Yeah. And people would ascribe that as like a, an inherently American thing. But I, again, you can find examples of very strong willed individuals throughout history in every single country. Yeah, completely changing the country's course or destiny or however you want to describe it. Um, I just thought of a, a weird side note, but you could do a, Fran a French version of this set during the Hundred Years' War with Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like that that's how basic this idea of a lone individual that has the, the skills, the, the tenacity, the gumption to come yeah. in and, and, and change the, the power dynamics is. It's kind of a... a is it an Ur story? Like, you know, uh, I, I don't do know mean? enough of the, I don't know enough of the Bible. Like, is it a story that has transcended decades and millennia now of 
these individuals or is it like a selection confirmation bias where history remembers these because it's noteworthy and interesting i think hmm, i think maybe like relating to the bible might be broadening the category too much because a lot of stories are just about like an individual who comes in and changes a thing i mean real really when you think about it jesus was the first lone samurai <laughs> I'd, I'd watch that anime I think that there is an anime where at least Jesus and Buddha meet. I've seen I've seen screenshots of that. That does that, Japan. What you doing? <laughs> um, anyway, back to Warrior's Way. Um, there's a lot of really amusing moments between Lin and Yang, uh, where like it's a very, it feels more real than a lot of other relationships, mm-hmm. um, because like he teaches her how to you know be confident in her knife throwing skills and. She teaches him how to not only know how to murder things. <laughs> yeah, the other the other half of life that he's missing. Yeah. She is terrible at throwing knives. And in the carnival, she she's gonna be the knife throwing act. But like you look at the uh the outline of the person and all the knives are going like dead center of mass. <laughs> <laughs> she's a she's actually a killer at heart. Yeah. And um so Yang teaches her how to throw knives correctly. And there's a funny moment where she's, you know, throwing them all right. And one is coming at him and he moves his head because it was going to hit him <laughs> there. And he just moves it out of the way. Yeah. He, he sticks it in, times it with, because she's blindfolded, times it with her third throw, jams it next to his head. Yang, Yang says that he doesn't teach her how to throw. He just teaches her how to like, believe or something believe in the heart of the warrior the warrior's way one might say <laughs> hmm of interesting note is uh tony cox's character eight ball he is a what is the the proper term nowadays a little person i looked it up before this because i figured we'd talk about it he is a little person and you know throughout history and throughout cinema especially recently uh, little people are ridiculed and typecast and only allowed to be certain things. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's interesting that this character of eight ball is never once insulted for his height or actively looked down upon in terms of position of power. When eight ball tells people to do something, they do it. And the only yeah. people that don't immediately listen to him are, demonstrated to be uh hooligans to begin with right um jeffrey rush does say or jeffrey rush's character the uh no sorry danny houston's character the colonel does say uh what did santa get for you little boy but uh, which is the villain you know yeah keeping in line with him being the villain he's the only person he's a big enough asshole to make fun of this person for something that is obvious to everyone else yeah there is also uh, a, a little person in Sukiyaki Western Django. Oh yeah, and it's 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 almost like a big lipped alligator moment where like he's just there, mm-hmm. and like no one no one comments on it at all, and no one like even like acknowledges the character really. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like just there. This is this is a person that exists. <laughs> it's like it's like someone was in casting. It's like hey, we got this little person there. Sure, throw him in. Mm-hmm. do it what what <laughs> why not um yeah. but speaking of danny houston I, he mostly plays villains because he does it so well like 
he does the affably evil kind of a uh, job of villains a lot of the time. And the yeah. Colonel in, in Warriors Away is no exception. You're first introduced to him in a, a flashback, correct? Um, e- hmm. Or does, no, that's, uh, sorry. He's affable when you first uh, see him, but he's wearing like a Phantom of the Opera mask over half his face. Yeah. Actually, I, I want to say the first time you see him is in that flashback. I don't think you see him in the mask first. I think you're introduced to him. Without is the first time the, you see him when scarring. he crashes the Christmas party then? No, I th- I think the first time you see him is when uh, we're learning about Lynn's uh, parents. It's that flashback with the colonel, you know, face unmarked because he kills Lynn's parents. Yeah, he's, he's not a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting thing that they do is he, they just call him the colonel. Now, usually in a Western, it would be a Southern colonel. He would be a Confederate or, a, you know, a, a, a bushwhacker style colonel. Uh, he is very clearly in a Union colonel outfit. So a little bit of a curve there in terms of, you know, what you would normally expect in a Western from like the that archetype. He's, uh, yeah, he's not what you expect. He has a weird thing for teeth. Yeah. Like, they tried to pour as much creepy on him as possible, I feel. Especially after, like, the second time he comes into town, he inspects a woman, likes her teeth, finds out she's married, kills both of the parents, and then chooses their daughters to, you know, have sex with non-consensually. But, like, heavily implied that he's going to have sex with them. Yeah. And it's only averted when Lynn basically pretends to be a whore. Yeah, or, you know, says that she's willing to take their place in whatever may come. So, yeah, there's that. Um, his final fight is him in his union suit, isn't it? Mm, I don't remember. He has... Because he was, you know... was going to take the bath. And she yeah. was preparing... And Lynn was preparing to kill him. Again, spoilers. Um <laughs> Well, and, that's, that's uh, before the final fight, because he, you know, they do it's the... It's kind sw- of long going, like, oh yeah, no, because he they captures do the, her. They do the switcheroo, Lynn throws the knife into the wrong guy, he goes away, comes back with, you know, quote unquote, his whole family, and that's when you have the, uh, like, circus showdown in the Ferris wheel with the dynamite, and... Man, I, I'm conflating things in my head. It's crazy no how worries. your mind does that. <laughs> I mean, I also just watched it like two hours ago, so it's go. very fresh in my head. So apologies for, for getting stuff wrong. I know the internet is an unforgiving place. <laughs> uh, well, currently no one knows how to reach us, so we're safe from most criticism. <laughs> Except our self-criticism, which really is the only one that hurts. Mm-hmm. No, one's, no one's harder on you than yourself. <laughs> you know, Have you hopefully. been on the internet? All right, yeah, fair enough. Um, I, I kind of, I should have, when I originally watched this film, uh, realized that Jeffrey Rush's character was not just the town drunk because he's the first one to comment on Yang, like you, you smell funny or something like that, or I can smell it on you or something along those lines. And the callback later in the film is that like I could smell the blood on you, yeah. And then Yang replies, "I could smell it on you as well," because yeah. you find out that Jeffrey Rush has. Uh, Ronald character was an outlaw gunslinger, you know, running from the law, but he met his one true gal 
and he was going <laughs> to turn it, leave it all behind. But some Texas Rangers that wouldn't give up were at that bar, and unfortunately, he lived, but she died. <laughs> His yep. entire backstory is so cliche that they didn't see fit to even really get, pay it like the barest amount of lip service, other than you know explaining why he's a drunk. <laughs> Yeah, well, they they couldn't do that flashback, so we just don't have the de aging CGI that you know we have today. <laughs> I, I think it would have been funnier if it was just Jeffrey Rush with like a slightly fuller like head of hair. <laughs> There's a little bit of like de aging in Sukiyaki Western Django's flashbacks as well. You know, not to return too much to that movie, but I think part of the reason they you know kind of fuzz up the flashbacks is. You know, you're relying on people to look a little younger. Okay. Interesting little note. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of nice quiet moments in The Warrior's Way that you don't really get in Django. When there's a quiet moment in Django, like something weird happens. It's It's almost as if like the director isn't comfortable letting a silence occur, at least yeah. in that film. Um, whereas, like I said earlier, there's a lot of room to breathe in the warrior's way and uh correct me if i'm wrong isn't it the longer runtime of the two or is it shorter i they're pretty close i want to say uh the warrior's way is actually shorter it is an hour and 40 minutes sukiyaki western django is two hours huh interesting so yeah the warrior's way despite being a shorter film it feels like the characters are more alive and more real for the most part you know, um, a lot of the things that happen, you know, they might have happened in the past, but like they still develop over the course. There's a great little moment when the colonel crashes the Christmas party at the town of Lode and he's, uh, you know, shooting a bottle on top of a mime's head. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, doing it with a gun, doing the old William Tell thing and just being, you know, generally terrible humans. Um, and, uh, at one point, Jeffrey Rush's character, Ro Ronald, uh, walks onto stage while the Colonel is about to take a shot, gets the drink off of the guy's head and drinks it and diffuses the situation, saving that guy's life. So it's a very much, it's like a legend of drunken master kind of thing going on there. Right. Int intentionally disarming, you know, cause what do you do? Blame a drunk. He's not in control of his own actions. Clearly. Worth noting, there's also a uh, machine gun in this uh, movie as well. Although not hidden in a coffin, if I recall. That's true. It is, it is brought in on horseback. Yeah, they just set up a machine gun. They do, uh, they do time the shots with the music, though. Uh, yeah. Which, I, which I'll always enjoy in a movie. I like anything synced up with music. Oh, speaking of music that we didn't even touch upon in uh, Sukiyaki, um, there was a lot of diegetic music in Sukiyaki Western Django. Like, mm-hmm. All the almost all the music that you heard for the most part was actually going on in the world. There's a lot of like didgeridoo, uh, which yeah. is played by people within that setting. There's a lot of um, uh, there's the singular trumpet by the Anazazi because I, I forgot to mention the Anazazi are also in Japan. Um, yeah, it, in it, Nevada, it, Japan. Yeah, Nevada, Japan, Anazazi. You know, I think it, it, it is a little telling, at least for me personally, that we keep going back to Sukiyaki Western Django when talking about The Warrior's Way. I think The Warrior's yeah. Way is a perfectly competent film. I think it's a fun film, but it's ultimately forgettable. Yeah, 
I I definitely like the effects of this movie and like the way they stylized a lot of the fight scenes. I oh I also do like the uh the final kind of like the larger final battle of this movie where all like the circus performers get you know all decked out in their outfits and yeah it was a, a what is that trope called anyway it's like they got they get dressed to the nines and you know dressed up in all their regalia and take it to the the colonel's uh, forces and kill them all mm-hmm. with the help of some liberally hidden dynamite inside the flower garden <laughs> that is triggered by the now sober Ronald shooting it from on top of the uh, wind, uh, not windmill, the Ferris wheel with his sniper lever action rifle. Yeah. And to be fair to Ronald, it is like 90% him and the dynamite. Like the circus <laughs> folk kind of get that one good ambush where they're shooting at people climbing the Ferris wheel. But yeah. then they, a lot of them get killed shortly after that. It's it's almost as if they're not fighters, including Eight Ball, uh, unfortunately. And it, it's, yeah. it's actually a sad moment because he himself feels bad because he was given the duty of protecting the the baby. Yeah, and um, the sad flutes have come because Yang had unsheathed his sword to fight the colonel's men, <laughs> which he fought them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very well he was able to uh was that him alone or was that the sad flutes that took that hallway that had the machine gun in it uh that was him alone yeah yeah yes he he took a hallway with a staircase alone that had a machine gun in it yeah uh, he's just that good <laughs> uh the other thing that is a little disappointing not because like they did it, but because there was a sequel hook in this film at the end, because uh, Yang has unsheathed his sword, he can now no longer know a peaceful life that he would have had in Lode had he not, you know, done the right thing and stopped the bad guy from from raping children. Um, right. And it cuts to like, was there like a time skip thing where it was like months later or years later or something like that? Uh, they don't say it, but he's like, you know, he went from the desert sands to, a, you know, Alaska. snowy Arctic environment. Yeah, it's obviously some, some time has passed. It took him some amount of time to get there. But, you know, there, there's nice little holdovers from his time in load. He's got a uh, a gramophone that has a wax cylinder of the opera that... Uh, that uh, Kate Bosworth's Lynn character played for him. It was like the first music he'd heard other than the gurgling of people's throats. <laughs> the saddest flute, yeah. He also kills someone with a frozen fish in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was, it was kind of funny. And then ninjas pop out of the ice to fight him. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, a... interesting thing I wanted to bring up. There is a line that happened in the trailer where Jeffrey Rush's character in this kind of grand shot where they're in the center of load uh, surround like with the, the last of the colonel's men. And all of a sudden the sad flutes are like flying in on top of the buildings. And it's this uh, like Michael Bay style wraparound pant, you know, low, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, low angle uh, <laughs> shot. And he goes ninjas doesn't happen in the actual movie. <laughs> I th- I I think maybe it's better off without it. But there there are several low angle three sixties. Uh, one of them happens when uh, Yang and Lin share a kiss for the first time. I mean, obviously, 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes it feels like that. (laughs) But uh, I've never had a camera crew follow me for that, fortunately. I mean, maybe you're doing it wrong then. Maybe you need to, uh, I mean, you, you, you got the means, you got the disposable income to hire like a low end, like camera crew to like film my first kiss. <laughs> yeah. Once all this podcast money starts pouring in, that's the first thing I'm getting. All that sick podcast money. Like you, you see, you know, what kind of raw are you going to get? What kind of, you know, film crew are you going to get? You know, today's episode brought to you by, please sponsor us. <laughs> brought to you by scuderia rari uh so i think that you know a, a problem this film had probably you know getting butts into the theaters was the cgi didn't look good in the trailers and that's mm-hmm. a po- problem of the trailers because the cgi is stylized it looked cheap i thought it was a cheap film when you know and compared to the budgets of other things it is cheap but like yeah. It's not all that cheap for an action movie of, you know, with the, you know, certain names in it. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think it did a good job advertising Jeffrey Rush. I didn't even know he was in the film from the trailer. Uh, you know, Zhang Dong-gun was the, you know, like the top build, but they don't, they didn't even like acknowledge Kate Bosworth or Danny Houston or like basically the main crux of the story was not portrayed by the trailers. The trailers showed like all the battle scenes that occur. Yeah. And like looking at the poster, especially like from the producer of Lord of the Rings, and then it's just Yang, you know, center on the poster in a rainy background with ninjas jumping at him. And like, that's 5% of the movie. With blue and orange as well. It's got the, the yeah. classic blue and orange combo going on. So like the, 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 the ads for it made it seem more generic than it was because it was actually a neat little fusion. Uh, is it as memorable as others? Probably not. But, you know, it, it was a competent film and it wasn't boring and it was inoffensive. And, you know, we're talking about a, a, a day and an age where we have, you know, the person we have in the White House that, it, you know, makes fun of people with mental disabilities and physical disabilities. And this was made, obviously, you know, under o- Obama, where we have... Uh, a little person being represented as a person. He, he's not his, you know, his situation in life. He commanded respect in the town of Lode and never once did I ever feel that that was like cheap or mm-hmm. just put in there to pander. You know, it felt genuine. Like he ran the circus. He was the actual ringleader. He kept people in line. And like that comes through in his character where he's, you know, gives some sage-like advice and he's very, you know, understanding, but not like in a magical, you know, minority kind of, uh, right. Role. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's also, I think a little telling that or not telling, but it is, you know, there's something to it being a circus as well, you know, where everyone like, you know, the circus is built on people who maybe don't fit in elsewhere or, you know, would, Receive, for the misfits yeah but, receive poor but, treatment other places but the, like yeah you would think that but the entire town is not just the circus performers i mean there's not a lot of people left but mm-hmm. the other people in town still do respect eight balls authority yeah and uh, and his decisions and you know so I, I think there's something to be said for that film that i definitely enjoyed that 
thinking about it more rather than in the film. Cause in the film, I'm just, you know, I'm very present just thinking about mm-hmm. the film and it, it never comes off as incredulous. Yeah. I, I mean, I do have one question about eight balls character in the movie and that is, does he put the eight on his head himself? Does he have someone <laughs> else do it for him? Probably has the mime help him. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of that, that clown makeup on there. I mean, also a lot of the, the, you know, the screen time is given to, you know, Lynn's character developing and by her just being the person she is and us learn and us learning about her, Yang's character, you know, becomes more rounded, becomes a person and is changed by the end of it. But like, she's not a damsel in distress. She just needs someone to, you know, help her refine her skills. Yeah. Like again, like, <laughs> and they they help each other. So like a, a typical western with this thing, you know, the 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 lone you know gunman or warrior would ride into town, and the woman would be, you know, either like a, she'd be depending on the era the film is made or what kind of you know budget or you know script it is, she'd either be working at the brothel or she would be you know the down on their luck farmhand's daughter. That mm-hmm. is just the dutiful daughter, and it like, this is this movie is more expectation subversion, whereas Sukiyaki Western Django is more like a meta film in a sense mm. because of all because uh, of all the references and in all all the the different like concepts going on and the different layers of like explicit storytelling and implicit you know yeah but kind of plays on. in that sandbox a little more than yeah the warrior's way does despite the warrior's way literally taking place in a sandbox <laughs> right that is a very sandy town i don't even know if the uh, aid ball and the rest of the, the the circus is putting a lot of their hope on the uh, the ferris wheel bringing bringing the the people back like i don't know there's there's too much sand it's coarse and rough and gets everywhere <laughs> still still can be fertile though if you you know grind up a hundred bison bones or whatever it was they said something like that (laughs) but i think i think that's probably our opinions on the warrior's way i guess we didn't really talk much about the final scene the final fight but i don't i don't know there's a whole lot i mean by the by the time you get there by the time you get there you know the conclusion that's going to happen i mean uh, something that can be said that this character doesn't go through that the characters in western django go through is that at the end of the final showdown in Western Django, like because you watch films, you know the good guy is gonna win, but mm-hmm. like you're not a hundred percent sure, especially since you know uh, Yoshitsune. I hope I said his name right. I did. Yeah, Yoshitsune yeah, can cut bullets with his katana. <laughs> right, he closes the distance real quick, and you're kind of like, oh, and geez, fact, you know. And in fact, he destroys the revolver that the the gunman was using. It's mm-hmm. only because the gunman catches him with the other one and then has a hitherto unseen Derringer on a spring-loaded arm contraption that he's able to kill Yoshitsune. Oh, fun fact, there is also a Derringer in the Western, uh, the Warrior's Way. It's the gun that uh, the colonel's holding when he uh, That's right. fools Lin into trying to attack him in the bath. Yes, yeah, he has a Derringer, so there, there was that Derringer in both of them. Parallels. Um, the parallels keep on coming. I just want to say I really like Danny Houston as the colonel. Like he 
He knows how to chew the scenery and when to do it and be hammy enough, but there was still like menace to a lot of his things. And, you know, when the, when Lynn and the Colonel have their final fight where Lynn kills the Colonel spoilers again, um, <laughs> you know, she, he says his last words to her. It's like, I'll, you're going, you're going to go to hell or something like that. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll see you in hell Wear something naughty. Yeah. And it's like, it's creepy and slimy and like, <laughs> like greasy is, is what you used to describe him, which is funny because that's what Lynn used to burn his face was bacon grease. Yeah. <laughs> so it looks like it's seeped into every fiber of his being really. Yeah. I can't believe Jeffrey Rush's IMDb page doesn't have known for the warrior's way. <laughs> Just some known, like little known films, King's speech, Shakespeare in love, <laughs> Pirates yeah, of the he, Caribbean. Oh. Yeah, you know, really, really bit roles and small, <laughs> you know, small movies. Yeah. Um, but should we talk about uh, which one we liked better? Get down to the final judgment. You know, that kind of gives us like the question of what is better, you know, because mm-hmm. I enjoyed both these movies. I, th- I think this is one of the clearer ones that are the harder ones in that sense to uh, get it, get it, get it narrowed down. Um they they were both fun. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little bit more movie going on in the Warriors' way, in the sense that it 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 is adhering to principles of like story writing and storytelling. Yeah. Whereas there's more of a a rebel feeling from Sukiyaki Western Django, in a sense, <laughs> where it's like. <laughs> I'm going to do all these references and they're going to make sense within this film, but you can't stop me from doing them. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say rebel when the warrior's way was produced by a company called rogue. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Um, Not as, not as rogue as you might think there, there's more purpose and it's more surgical in warrior's way. Like there, there was clearer vision and clearer, like filmmaking going on. And I think, you know, part of that has to do with uh, Warrior's Way being an American production. Uh, I'm fairly certain of that. It was made in America um, mm-hmm. versus it sounds right. Versus Sukiyaki Western Django being a Japanese film. And, you know, obviously you get differences in the director Takashi Miike being that kind of coming from indie, you know, horror and like almost gonzo style filmmaking where, just the weirdest stuff happens. And I think there's still some of that that hurts it to its detriment where it's like, ah, oh, throw it in. It's funny. It amuses me that maybe if I was Japanese, I would understand that character archetype, like in reference to the, the sheriff, like mm. why all of a sudden does he have a literal split personality? Yeah. And like, you know, it kind of works, but I would say though the sheriff scenes, even though it's really good, like physical acting and like voice and like, stuff going on those are the the part that drag and there's no real part that drags in the warrior's way yeah i i still feel like it's also a little telling that we thought the warrior's way was longer than sukiyaki western django yeah but like uh, i i want to i want to impress express that it didn't feel long like you you can get into films sometimes in the like the revenant when i first saw that film that film felt long it felt excruciating and i saw it in a packed theater so i like certain times i just felt uncomfortable with like basically the survival porn that was going on 
cut to mm-hmm. the time I rewatched it with you and uh, two friends in the, in my room with me, it was a lot more breezy. So there's something to be said about the the mind space you're in when you first see a film and how you first see it leading you to feel like it's long or not. Yeah. Which is like an entirely different psychological thing to get into. <laughs> right. Um, just a, a small correction addendum. Uh, uh, the Warriors Way was filmed in New Zealand and South Korea. Oh, okay. Mostly filmed in New Zealand. It was a New Zealand, South Korea south korean movie i guess gotcha <laughs> so uh, but western sensibilities like it well the money if, was the money western like are is rogue a western company and like was the was it distributed via a western distribution service because again that that leads to different expectations for how a film's gonna go yeah um rogue is <laughs> first of all the website for Rogue, about Rogue. Rogue takes a fresh apo- approach to production, bringing an edge to the norm. With ride-or-die lady EPs at your back, their curated directorial cor- collective is one to rival. Mm. Simply put, they give a shit. That's, uh, can you can you cut with that edge that they got there? Oh, <laughs> uh, let's see here. Rogue Films is based in London. So it is Western sensibility. Yeah. Not necessarily an American company. So I apologize for my Amerocentric viewpoint. I shall fall on my sword. <laughs> um, I I definitely agree that the Warrior's Way is a... It's a more movie movie. <laughs> like, it, you go in, you know what to expect. At least from the, the perspectives that we have, you know, our... American-centric perspectives, or Sukiyaki Western Django. I don't know if it's just the Western genre because I'm not like too experienced with that stuff. But it it was a very different feeling movie for me, and uh, I'm gonna say I I I went back and forth on this so much, like especially in like today rewatching them both. But I I think I like Sukiyaki Western Django a little more. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it's, uh, full disclosure, I own on Blu-ray Sukiyaki Western Django. And when I saw it, I was like, I gotta own it. Mm-hmm. I am not I, I am not that way with The Warrior's Way. I had forgot it even existed until I was looking at movies that were similar to Sukiyaki Western Django to compare. Yeah. So, I, it, it's... It's a competent film. It does it does some interesting things, but it's ultimately, unfortunately, forgettable, and that is uh, a shame. It it really is because it was it's doing some things like you know I mentioned representation wise and you know storyline wise and it that a lot of films to this day don't get into. Yeah. Um. It's yeah, it's it's kind of undeniable that kind of impact I guess it had on both of us. Like I'm sure I'll, you know, be recommending it to other people after this, even even if it's just for like, hey, go into this movie knowing nothing and just you know enjoy the spectacle of it. Yeah, they 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 both do things that maybe you've seen before, 
Sukiyaki Western Django just leaves more of an impact because you know, maybe maybe owing to its budget, it was coming more from a place of passion. Yeah. You know, I, like the cynical part of me is saying that like, oh, Warrior's Way, it was a Korean, you know, London production filmed in New Zealand and, and South Korea. And it was really an attempt to push Jang Dong-gun to the Western audiences. You know, it was a cynical, you know, Western penetration movie. It was, it was gonna get him, you know, his publicity. Like, you know, Chow Young Fat doing, you know, films or something like that mm. to get, you know, known to the Western audiences. And it yeah. unfortunately didn't work. And that obvious and very blatant sequel hook never pans out. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, hey, watch both the movies if you haven't already. They're both a good time. If you got, if you got a, la- a lazy afternoon to kill, watch one <laughs> or the other. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Sukiyaki Western Django was the one that dipped and scored. Is now ranked below the Warriors' Way by point one. Now, curious, how many votes do vo- both films have? Uh, Sukiyaki Western Django has thirteen thousand. The Warriors' Way has twenty four thousand. Oh, interesting. Uh, well, we'll say fourteen. Yeah, fourteen thousand for Sukiyaki Western Django is thirteen nine. So I guess more people agree that, uh, that the Warriors Way is a solid film, and more and and less people have seen Sukiyaki Western Django. <laughs> but as we as we discussed, the internet's full of assholes, us included. Oh, a hundred percent. Well, uh, so that wraps it up uh, for the Match Cut podcast. Uh, I've been Matthew, and that has been Aaron. We'll see you next time with. Two films set during turbulent eras featuring music. They're musicals. <laughs> so look out for that, and we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye.